0: What happens when we run out of doctors? America has a shortage of doctors. It's a reason why costs for healthcare overall are rising faster than wages. Yet the biggest doctors association, the AMA, rarely talks about that. Instead, it talks about policies of structural and personal racism. Food insecurity, housing insecurity, No access to fresh fruits and vegetables. But the AMA has a plan to address those problems. The AMA released a comprehensive strategic plan to guide us in our work to advance health equity. A comprehensive guide. Here it is. Fifty-four pages telling doctors what words to use. Instead of saying equality, say equity. Don't say minority. Say historically marginalized. Much of this report reads like a course in Marxism, Expose property rights. Individualism is
1: problematic. This is what doctors should talk to patients about? It is important to try to understand if there's discrimination happening.
0: Journalist Matt Iglesias wrote about the AMA's health equity plan. They. Dave- Want to be inclusive.
1: There is evidence that there is discrimination. But they're talking here, though, things like people experiencing homelessness rather than homeless people.
0: Iglesias leans left, and yet this guide is too much for him. The AMA wants doctors to tell patients decisions by landowners and large corporations limit prospects
1: for good health. This is political propaganda. Can you imagine anyone actually doing this? What would happen? If you were in a clinical setting and somebody starts giving you this lecture about landowners and then you're there in the patient and you're like, we're going to have an argument about why does poverty exist? Nobody practices medicine like that and it wouldn't be helpful to anybody to start.
0: He points out that while the AMA now tells doctors refer to neighborhoods as systematically divested
1: rather than poor, it lobbies for things that hurt poor people. They restrict what kinds of people can provide medical services. They restrict who can become
2: doctors. If you want to become a doctor in the United States, you first have to earn your bachelor's degree in university over four years.
0: Then, four years of med school, a residency,
1: and a fellowship.
2: By the time you've completed training, you'll be at least between 29 and 34 years of age.
1: And so the United States has a very low number
0: of physicians. Fewer than any European country. Austria has
1: twice as many. We have the best paid physicians in the world, and we also have sort of the scarcest physicians in the world, and that's not a coincidence.
0: Years ago, in most of America, anyone could practice medicine. This journal article says licensed doctors' objections to that led directly to the formation of the AMA.
1: It's a trade group, right? I mean, it's a trade group of doctors. They are there to help their members and help advance the interests of their members.
0: They're like the teachers' union or the doc workers'
1: union. I mean, it's called a trade association rather than a union, but it's never been all that different. In
0: 1986, the AMA called for smaller enrollment in med schools to curb an alleged surplus of doctors. Eleven years later, they even got the government to pay millions to training hospitals, not to train doctors. That helped create today's shortage, which is severe enough that even economically illiterate people notice. The richest country in the history of the world simply does not have enough doctors. I wanted to interview an AMA official about their blocking competition. They declined, but they sent this statement saying, They've approved 20 new med schools and support increasing the number of physicians to address shortages. That's good, but give me a break. In the midst of a doctor shortage, the AMA and government limit the number of doctors. They also impose strict controls that keep out foreign doctors.
1: There's no way to say, look, I've been treating patients in Canada or Italy or Australia for the past 10 years. I want to come to the U.S. Um, you know, and open up my own shop.
0: These rules are why the average American doctor makes more than $200,000 a year. Such well-paid doctors can afford to be choosy about where to work. It's a reason it's tough to find a doctor in rural America.
1: If you have enough Medical doctors, then they have to start looking for patients, you know, and you say, hey, there's all these people, they're living in North Dakota, they don't have a convenient doctor to see, I could go there, I could have a successful business. That does happen in freer markets. Because there's no limit on the number of Walmarts or Targets you can open. They try to serve as many communities as they possibly can. If you cap the number of stores, people wouldn't put them in small towns. Likewise.
3: Come this way, please.
1: Restaurants keep time that's convenient for their customers. Uh, Doctors, you know, keep hours that are convenient for doctors. Because
0: doctors are scarce, people often ask nurses for help.
1: Ferguson opened her
4: clinic more than five years ago. She can do that under Texas law as long as
1: she works with a supervising doctor. Only if she's supervised by a doctor? That makes it much harder to open sort of retail health clinics, other things that provide low-cost, uh, high convenience.
0: Many nurses give good care, but few doctors want to compete with a nurse.
5: I gave up a decade of my life
6: to become a doctor. If you want to function as a doctor, go get the training to be a doctor.
1: And training shouldn't be like fraternity hazing, where you do it just to like, show that you did it. Nurses have a lot of training, not as much as doctors, but there's a lot of useful stuff that they can do, and they should be allowed to do it.
0: The AMA lobbies against that. So in all the states in red here, nurse midwives may not open their own practice. Taking such options away hurts poor people. But the AMA doesn't talk about that. Instead, they claim... Meaningful progress won't happen
1: until we as doctors recognize how profoundly systemic racism influences the health of our patients. Getting really obsessed with language politics is a good way to position themselves as the good guys without addressing their own role in creating these problems.
0: Thanks for watching our video. If you want to help us cover more stories like this, hit that button.
4: Here's the good news. The secret police are not coming with guns to take you away to a prison camp in a frozen wasteland for speaking out against the government. They did that in communist countries in the 20th century. It's not going to happen here in America or in Western Europe. Here's the bad news. The secret police aren't coming for you because they don't have to. There are ways to shut you up and keep you quiet that don't involve physical force. The powers that be—and that now includes major corporations, the educational establishment, the media, and the government—can just kick you off the Internet, put you on a no-fly list, and bar you from using the banking system. We can describe scenario number one as hard totalitarianism and scenario number two as soft totalitarianism. There are big differences between them, but in the end, you arrive at the same place—submission and silence. To grasp the threat of totalitarianism, hard or soft, it's important to understand exactly what it means. According to the famous political scholar Hannah Arendt, a totalitarian society is one in which an ideology seeks to displace all prior traditions and institutions with the goal of bringing all aspects of society under control of that ideology. The state literally defines and controls reality, truth, as whatever the rulers decide it is. These rulers might say something like, men can have babies. Or, skin color is more important than character. Or, the American Revolution was fought not for freedom, but to protect the colonists' slave interest. Or, those who resist a vaccine mandate are enemies of the people. And insist that you not only believe it, but affirm it. If you don't, you might lose your job your business and your good name that dystopian future of course is now and we're only at the beginning of this process where does it lead to less freedom that much we know again no guns no violence we just go along nobody kicks a door down we open the door and invite them in the more information the government has about you And the more the tech sector can see what you're doing and saying online, the easier it is to monitor your behavior. How long before the government creates a digital profile of each citizen? And how would the government use that profile? It might go like this. If you do socially positive things as defined by the government, nothing really changes. You can do whatever you want. Maybe you're even rewarded for good behavior a faster internet connection, preferred medical treatment, or even the best seats at a concert. If you do socially negative things, again, as defined by the government, you lose privileges. You're pushed to the margins of society. You become a non-person. Sound far-fetched? It shouldn't. It's happening right now in China. It happened in Russia and Eastern Europe not that long ago. Talk to anyone who lived behind the Iron Curtain and they will tell you we are headed down a dangerous road. No, you say, it can't happen here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. I wouldn't be so sure. Ronald Reagan famously observed that freedom can be lost in a single generation. That's because the human inclination is not toward liberty, but security. Freedom is a value, not an instinct. It entails personal responsibility and risk. Security requires little risk and little personal responsibility. So, it comes with little freedom. That's why every new generation must be taught the supreme importance of freedom and develop the strength of character to maintain it. Of course, the people who want to take away our freedom say they're doing it in the name of compassion for the many victims of oppression. Unlike the Bolsheviks of the old Soviet Union, the left of today's America gets its way not by shedding blood, but by shedding tears. Don't be fooled. The objective is always the same—submission and silence. So how do we stop the drift towards soft totalitarianism? This is not an easy question, but we can create a base from which we can start to act. Let it be this. You may not have the strength to stand up in public and say what you really believe, but you can at least refuse to affirm what you do not believe. You cannot overthrow this soft totalitarianism on your own. But if enough of us find within ourselves, our families, and our communities, the means and the courage to live in the dignity of truth, no matter what it costs, we can keep America free. Otherwise, we will learn how easy it is to become a totalitarian country. Soft or hard. I'm Rod Dreher, author of Live Not by Lies for Prager University.
7: This video was made possible by a generous donation from the T.W. Lewis Foundation.
4: Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax deductible donation.
5: Why study history? Ironically, this question is as old as history. 2,500 years ago, Thucydides, the great chronicler of the Peloponnesian Wars between Athens and Sparta, and the man many call, the first historian, said that, I have written my work not to win the applause of the moment, but as a possession for all time. Thucydides hoped that what he was writing would help future generations understand what transpired in his day. If they could learn from it, and make better decisions, his efforts would not be in vain. More than two millennia later, the American social thinker, George Santayana, said much the same thing. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But while knowledge of the past is a prerequisite to wisdom, it doesn't give the historian a crystal ball. We must be modest in our claim. Studying history provides an invaluable guide, but only a guide to current and future political, economic, military, and cultural challenges. Just as it is dangerous to be ignorant of past events, so too is equally risky to assume that history across time and space will repeat itself in exactly the same fashion. It never does. Still, with a proper caution, studying history can warn us of dangers ahead. For example, across the ages, appeasing or ignoring enemies has rarely proven to be a prudent strategy. Usually, it's disastrous. The Greek city-state's coddling of the Macedonian king Philip II, the weak Western democracy's reaction to the aggression of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s, and the indifference shown to the dangers of radical Islam by an affluent West in the 1990s make this point. There is another perhaps less recognized value in studying history. Every generation, none more than our own, suffers from a pernicious presentism, the arrogance that those now alive have created the most prosperous period in history. The result is that too often we judge a materially poorer past by the same contemporary standards of an affluent and leisured present. Those who study history can avoid these fallacies. Aside from the fact that the present is the beneficiary of the accumulated intellectual, moral, and scientific contributions of the past, proper knowledge of the hardship of prior ages teaches us the value of humility. To take just one possible example, it might be an easy thing to chronicle what seems to us prejudices recorded among the Wagoneers on the Oregon Trail in the 1840s. It is quite another to imagine how the trailblazers struggled to survive one more day in an age without effective medicines, labor-saving machines, or adequate shelter. Studying history also confers much-needed perspective. It's neither fair nor wise to attempt to apply the moral standards of today to, say, the far more deadly 17th century, when life, in the words of English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The COVID-19 pandemic seems to many like a public health crisis without precedent until we take time to learn of the global outbreak of the H1N1 influenza virus in 1918. The Spanish flu killed nearly 600,000 Americans in a nation of 100 million, with a worldwide toll of perhaps 50 million dead, and yet our nation and planet survived and learned from it. One of the ways that I used to endure the tedium, dust, and noise of tractor driving was to remember that my farming grandfather covered the same ground with a team of horses. It took him two days of backbreaking labor to cultivate four acres of land. I could do it in an hour, sitting down. But while technology improves, human nature does not. That means we have, if we bother to look, a timeless connection to those who went before us. Their struggle to make sense of life is our struggle. In this regard, there's still much to learn from King David, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, or Elizabeth I. And we can draw strength and courage when all seems lost from inspirational figures like George Washington, Frederick Douglass, or the Wright brothers. Finally, the study of history teaches to value caution over certainty. We should avoid making judgments about who's good, and who's bad, as if we were watching a morality tale in the present. Major historical players like Julius Caesar, Robert E. Lee, and Napoleon were complex men who at points in their lives did some good things. That these efforts ultimately led to bad outcomes, made far worse by their own outsized talents, is one of the many tragedies of history. So why study history? Nobel Prize-winning American novelist, William Faulkner summed it up as well as anyone, the past is not dead. In fact, it's not even past. I'm Victor Davis Hanson, senior historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford for Prager University.
2: The most influential news source in the world is the New York Times. Every day, Hundreds of newspapers and TV and cable news stations around the world follow its lead, literally. Why wouldn't they? Isn't the Times the gold standard of journalism? The place where the facts of the story are presented without bias or agenda? Actually, the answer is no. When it comes to episodes of major historical significance, the New York Times has routinely failed to provide the public with unbiased journalism. Instead, it has chosen to manufacture false narratives, often with catastrophic consequences. It has done this in service of its own financial and ideological interests. This goes back at least to 1932. That year, there was a terrible famine in the Ukraine. Between 5 and 7 million Ukrainians starved to death. The disaster had nothing to do with bad weather and everything to do with the ruthless regime of the Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin. Walter Duranty, the Times foreign correspondent in Moscow, knew all of this and covered it up. In fact, his reports flatly denied there was any famine at all. The American media took its lead from the Times star reporter. So did America's political elite, including newly elected President Franklin Roosevelt who personally met with Duranti to discuss the situation in the Soviet Union. Durante had another admirer, Joseph Stalin. The brutal tyrant had nothing but praise for the New York Times man. You've done a good job in your reporting of the USSR because you tried to tell the truth about our country. Had Duranti exposed the facts about Stalin and the famine, the American people would have better understood the true nature of the Soviet Union. Instead, many were fooled. When it came to reporting on the persecution of Jews in Germany leading up to World War II, the Times was even worse. Initially, the paper refused to publish reports on the concentration camps. And when it finally did, those reports were relegated to the back pages. Again, the Times set the tone for the rest of the American media. If the Times didn't think the genocide of the Jews was a major story, it must not be one. In 1957, the Times flipped this script. It took a minor story, a rebellion in Cuba, and turned it into a major one. In the process, it helped destroy an entire country. New York Times reporter Herbert Matthews tracked down an all-but-defeated rebel named Fidel Castro at his mountain hideout. From this interview came a flurry of front-page New York Times articles hailing Castro as Cuba's democratic savior. The Times transformed the down-and-out Marxist revolutionary into an international sensation. It is not an exaggeration to say that the Times MADE Castro. Without its assistance, the Cuban Revolution would have almost certainly failed. A very similar phenomenon played out a few years later in Southeast Asia. This time, instead of making a hero out of a villain, the Times made a villain out of a hero. With the paper's blessing, a brash Young Times reporter, David Halberstam, decided that South Vietnamese elected leader Ngo Dinh Diem was a murderous madman. Caught up in the prevailing leftist notion that the American war effort was immoral and that the North Vietnamese communists were the real freedom fighters, Halberstam wrote piece after piece designed to bring down Diem. The one that did it was his reporting that the Diem government had massacred 30 Buddhist monks Who were protesting Diem's policies. Only it didn't happen. Halberstam manufactured it out of whole cloth, basing it on anonymous sources and rumors. When a United Nations team later investigated the killings, they found that all the murdered Buddhists were alive and well. By then, of course, the damage had been done. Diem was never able to restore his reputation. Not long thereafter, he was assassinated and his government collapsed. For all his flaws, Diem was a strong leader and was never effectively replaced. The war would grind on for 10 more years. Today, The New York Times is spreading what might be its most damaging lie yet, that America is rooted in slavery, not liberty. This is the theme behind its 1619 project. Historians across the board, from left to right, have debunked the report's core claims. But far from rectifying the situation, the Times has doubled down, lobbying school districts around the country to replace their history curricula with the 1619 Project's brazen slanders. I've only given you a few examples of the Times' egregious behavior. You'll find many more in my book, The Gray Lady Winked, how the New York Times from misreporting, distortions, and fabrications radically alter history. The most influential newspaper in the world Doesn't deserve your trust. That it pretends to be objective just adds to its dishonesty. The New York Times pursues its own agenda, not the truth. Time to get wise to it. I'm Ashley Rinsberg, investigative journalist for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep Prager U videos free, please consider making a tax deductible donation.
3: Ronald Reagan fashioned his political career and his presidency around three things. Lower taxes, smaller government, strong defense. In doing so, he almost single-handedly resurrected and redefined the modern conservative movement. But he did much more than that. He resurrected and redefined America. If that sounds like an impressive feat, it was. And it's hard to imagine anyone other than Reagan who could have done it. Known by friend and foe alike as the great communicator, even Democrats conceded that no one could connect with the American people like Reagan. Whenever he went on TV, which was often, to promote a policy, he invariably swung the American people his way. When he explained something, it just made sense. Fittingly, it was a TV speech in 1964 entitled A Time for Choosing that launched his political career. He delivered it on behalf of Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater. Here's just one of his many memorable passages. No government ever voluntarily reduces itself in size. Actually, a government bureau is the nearest thing to eternal life we'll ever see on this earth. This was pure Reagan, a basic truth delivered with humor. Born in a small Midwestern town on February 6, 1911, Reagan honed his communication skills as a radio announcer, and then as an actor. He was a genuine Hollywood star and celebrity for over two decades before he got into politics. Tall, broad-shouldered, and handsome with a golden voice, he was well-respected and well-liked by his peers. He was also seen as a natural leader. From 1947 to 52, he was president of the Screen Actors Guild, deftly guiding it through the Blacklist era. In 1965, encouraged by the positive response to his A Time for Choosing speech, Reagan decided to run for governor of California. He won easily. The victory immediately established him as a major figure in the Republican Party. By 1980, he was their overwhelming choice for president. That year, he soundly defeated President Jimmy Carter. The incumbent lost because his pessimistic approach to problem solving mirrored the justifiably sour mood of the country. The economy was going nowhere, caught in the double grip of inflation and stagnation. In contrast, Reagan, ever the optimist, offered a way out. It wasn't the American people who were to blame, he told voters. It was the government. Reagan would get it out of the way. He would lower taxes and cut red tape. He did both. The media dismissed his plan, calling it Reaganomics. But it worked. From 1982 to 87, the American economy, defined as GDP adjusted for inflation, rose an astonishing 27%, manufacturing 33%, and the median income by 12%. An estimated 20 million new jobs were created. All income classes and all racial and ethnic groups benefited from the Reagan economy. The dark decade of the 70s, a time in which it looked like America was in a terminal eclipse, faded away. It was, as Reagan put it during his 1984 re-election campaign, morning in America again. Every bit as transformational as his work on the economy was his approach to foreign policy, specifically the Soviet Union. It's easy to forget, but when Reagan came to office in 1981, Soviet-styled communism appeared to be as strong, if not stronger, than American-style democracy. Whereas Reagan's predecessor had taken a we-just-need-to-get-along approach, Reagan saw it much differently. He didn't mince words. In March of 1983, he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. The media and Democrats wailed that the phrase was reckless, but it was typical Reagan, simple, clear, and true. What else do you call a totalitarian system that had deprived millions of people across the globe of their freedom? When asked what his strategy was for fighting the Cold War, Reagan replied, we win they lose. It wasn't just a glib line. He meant it. He expanded the U.S. defense budget to unprecedented levels, in part to develop a ballistic missile shield his critics dubbed Star Wars. The strategy was to pressure the Soviets to try and keep up, which he knew they couldn't. He was right. They didn't have the money or the technology. Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev did all he could to pressure Reagan to drop it, but he would not budge. To drive home his point, Reagan went to the Berlin Wall, a symbol of communist oppression, and delivered one of his most famous lines, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. By the end of the decade, a year after Reagan left office, the Soviet Union collapsed, an outcome no one could have imagined, except possibly Reagan himself. There are many reasons why this happened, but no one played a bigger role than our 40th president. We won. They lost. Before the Reagan era, Americans were depressed and uncertain. By the end of it, they were optimistic and confident. Reagan had stuck to his formula, lower taxes, less government, strong defense. It worked, and it still does today. I'm Scott Walker, President of Young America's Foundation and former Governor of Wisconsin for Prager University.
7: How many times have you heard that israel occupies the west bank probably more times than you can count but have you ever asked yourself whether it's true or even what it means let's do so now in the most objective way possible that is in the way that all territorial questions everywhere else in the world are resolved to do this we must look at the law but first we need a little history up until 100 years ago the areas now called israel the west bank gaza And all the countries around them were part of the Ottoman Empire, which ruled over a vast area and many peoples. Neither the Jews, nor those Arabs we now call Palestinians, had a state, though the Jews had a nationalist movement calling for one. Everything changed after World War I. The Ottomans fought on the losing side with Germany. By the end of the war in 1918, their empire had disintegrated, leaving the British and French in control of much of its territory. In earlier times, the victors would likely have kept this land as colonies for themselves, but there was a new spirit of democracy in the air. The Allies, including the British, French, and Americans, agreed that the former Ottoman lands should be allowed to become independent nation-states. After the war, the nations of the world created the League of Nations, a precursor to the United Nations. Meeting in San Remo, Italy in 1920, they set up what was known as the Mandate system. The colonies of the defeated powers, Germany and the Ottoman Empire, were converted into distinct geopolitical entities, which became the countries now known as Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. None of this is controversial. There was one other mandate issued, the Mandate for Palestine. Now, Palestine was merely a geographic label, the name the Romans gave the Jewish Kingdom of Judea after they conquered it. There was nothing exclusively Arab about it. The mandate provided that Palestine would become a national home for the Jewish people. There was a simple reason for this. The League recognized that Jews were the indigenous people of the area. All the mandatory territories in the Middle East transitioned to statehood in the 1930s and 40s, with Israel the last to do so, declaring independence in May 1948. Now we get to the legal stuff. What were the borders of the State of Israel when it declared independence? International law has a simple and universally applicable rule for determining borders of new countries. It's called the uti Prosidetus juris principle. Lawyers love Latin phrases. The rule provides that when a new country is created, its borders match the borders of the previous geopolitical entity in that territory. For example, the borders of Ukraine, Latvia, and Azerbaijan Are exactly what they were when they were parts of the Soviet Union. Other considerations, such as demographics, are not taken into account, because without a simple, easily applied rule, a new country's borders would never be settled—a recipe for permanent conflict. Applying this rule to Israel means that it had sovereign claims to all of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and Gaza, because those were its borders according to the Mandate of Palestine. To be sure, the United Nations proposed a resolution in 1947 with different borders and a much smaller area for a Jewish state. But that resolution was a non-binding recommendation. Nothing more. It did not have the force of law. We know what happened next. Upon declaring independence, Israel was immediately invaded by five Arab armies seeking to destroy it. Israel survived, but Jordan managed to seize parts of Jerusalem, as well as Judea and Samaria, which it dubbed the West Bank. All the Jews living in these areas were expelled, or to use the contemporary term, ethnically cleansed. Here, we need to introduce another key principle of international law. A war of aggression cannot be used to change another country's borders. Israel and Jordan signed an armistice agreement in 1949, an agreement to temporarily stop fighting. This truce had no legal effect on borders. When Israel liberated these territories in 1967 during the Six-Day War, it was retaking its own land. You can't occupy land that belongs to you. So where are we now? In 1994, the Palestinian Authority was established as part of the Oslo Accords. Israel didn't have to agree to this, but it did. While not being a sovereign state, the PA operates independently of Israel. The PA, not Israel, governs the lives of Palestinians living in the West Bank. Israel has offered the Palestinians a fully independent state on several occasions. Each time, the Palestinians have rejected the offer, something no other national independence movement in modern times has done. Whether or not it makes sense for Israel to renew such offers is an open question, but it's under no legal obligation to do so. I'm Eugene Kantorovich, professor of law at George Mason University, for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.
6: This support group is for people who are so woke that they are finding it impossible to have any fun at all. We have somebody new with us this week, so would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Hi, I'm Oscar. Uh,
4: I think, like a lot of you guys, for me, it started with the little things, signing an online petition, going to a march. Well, I mean, before I knew, I was writing to The Guardian about LGBT representation in the Harry Potter books.
6: Which is shocking, by the way. All right, Lily. We've all read your blog. Don't worry, Oscar, you've come to the right place. All of the young people in this room are ruining their lives by being overly virtuous. That's
4: actually a microaggression to say young people because it carries subconscious bias towards the elderly.
6: Actually, what you're doing is denying agency to the elderly, which is arguably much worse. This is is what I'm talking about. You see, it's a slippery slope. One minute you're carrying a reusable water bottle and the next minute you're arguing that water is racist. Oh my God, is water racist? No, no, it's just an example. Right, how did you guys get on with the homework that I set you? Guys isn't an especially inclusive term. Not now, Jamie. By homework, do you mean having to watch that old people's sitcom? It's called Friends, Lily. And you were supposed to watch it and enjoy it. Well, I try, but I found it deeply problematic. Why? Well, there's the homophobia, the transphobia, the fatism, and the slut-shaming. And could Chandler be any more annoying? You can't go through your 20s worrying about every aspect of everything. You have to pick your battles. And just remember that it doesn't really matter, because by the time you hit your 30s, most of you are going to be massively right-wing anyway. Have any of you started to think that maybe poor people don't deserve benefits? No. Well, watch out for that one, because that's how it starts. Look, I understand this has all been a bit much for some of you, so let's take five and have a hobnob.
5: I find the word hobnob very phallocentric.